You're listening to Asbury University's Chapel Podcast, recorded live from our campus in Wilmore, Kentucky. Asbury's Chapel Service hosts speakers from around the world to inspire academic excellence and spiritual vitality. We hope you enjoy today's message. Hey, good morning, everyone. My name is Kevin. I am so excited for today. I've been looking forward to this chapel for a long time. And you all just had spring break. Hopefully you feel a little more rested than you did before. We're about to enter into this home stretch. So that's good news. We have guests today. I'm so excited about that. If you're a guest here of Asbury, you're always welcome here. Thank you for being here. So I want to start, I want to start today by telling you about my first marital argument. And I, I, <laughs> I've received permission from Maria to tell the story. It was actually over the existence of aliens. True story. We were about to go out to eat, and I was watching this really silly show about some mystery in nature, and the the person came on, and they said, some think that the unexplained phenomenon can be explained by aliens. And Maria was in the background, she's like, that is so ridiculous. Who even believes that? And then she said, you don't believe in aliens, do you? Pause. And then I obnoxiously answered, define alien. And she was like, what do you mean define alien? I was like, well, are we talking about little green people in saucers or, or bacteria in another galaxy? And, and isn't it arrogant to think that we can have full knowledge of what's taking place in the universe? And everything just kind of went downhill from there. Now, luckily, We went out to eat, we moved on, it was fine, it wasn't a big deal. But with some years and with some maturity between us both, we've actually come to understand that that first marital fight in a different light. You see, when Maria asked me if I believed in aliens, what she was really asking me was, are you going to be stable? Are you gonna be dependable? Are you going to be black and white? Are you going to be a positive influence for our family? Are you not going to be weird? And when I responded to Maria, what I was really saying was, are you going to accept a husband who does not conform to your image of what a husband should be? In other words, the thing we were talking about wasn't really the thing we were talking about. And I think this happens pretty often. So students, we say at Asbury, we aim, we desire to create the conditions for students to belong and to become and to be set apart. And that's not just some statement we came up with. A lot of time and energy and thought and deliberation went into that by a lot of people. But when we talk about belonging and becoming and being set apart, we're really talking about a lot more. The thing we're talking about isn't really the thing that we're talking about. So I want to suggest the following. If we're created, if you and I are created by a creator God, then we are embodied and we are embedded teleological creatures. We inhabit a story, and there's a logic to time. Time isn't one thing after another. And there's this narrative arc to our lives, and there's a directionality and a trajectory to how we live. And second, if that's true, then I want to make a a short case to you this morning 
that belonging and becoming and being set apart is far more demanding and far more challenging, but also far more wonderful and far more life-giving than what we might otherwise realize. So here's what I want to do. To explore this, I want to talk about three important dimensions of the Christian life. And I want to make a comment about this grid. Typically, when we, we see grids like this, we, we look at the left column and we think, that's bad. And then we look at the right column and think, that's good. This is not one of those grids. What you see on the left is good. But what you see on the right is the movement. It's the trajectory. It's the mature expression of this particular element. So we're going to look at the, the direction of belonging, the direction of the self in the direction of Jesus's invitation. So let's start with belonging. And belonging begins, I would say, with acceptance. Acceptance is good. It literally means receiving someone as adequate or suitable. It makes room at the table. It sees through the eyes of others. Miroslav Volf was here a few weeks ago. He calls this double vision. It's mutual understanding, it's goodwill toward the other. And acceptance is kindness. Kindness should mark our Christianity. It's a fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness. And to say that Christians should be kind people is kind of like saying the car comes with the steering wheel. <laughs> like, of course, we know that, of course it does. So we should be kind people, but the full expression of belonging is not simply kindness, it moves to obligation. Remember Dr. Aaron Penner's excellent chapel last semester, and I'm paraphrasing one of her statements, but she said, if your community does not demand something of you, it's not a community. I heard someone say recently, obligations mean we belong. And one way to frame the movement from acceptance to obligation is to look at our idea of love, right? So love, love begins with a kind of niceness. C.S. Lewis calls it sentimental kindness. But he points out that's not necessarily a mature expression of love. A more mature understanding of love is what Thomas Aquinas said, to will the good of another. That kind of love obligates. And Lewis says this. He says, I don't think I should value very much the love of a friend who cares only for my happiness but does not object to me being dishonest. Do you see the difference? Yes, there's a niceness, there's a kindness, a sentimental kindness, but a real mature expression of love is a challenge. It's an obligation. It's willing the good of another. There's an excellent story uh, that's told uh, of a, an Indian pastor and an American pastor. And the Indian pastor had come to the United States, and he's talking with this American pastor, and he says, you know, in India, we do marriage better than you do here in the States. The American pastor said, well, that's an interesting idea because in India, marriages are arranged oftentimes. He said, tell me more. And the Indian said, in India, we start with commitment and we learn how to love. In America, you start with love and you learn how to commit. 
And don't worry, I'm not proposing some new Asbury arranged marriage program or, or something like that or anything along those lines. But the point is this, deep, mature, embedded community and belonging, these things demand something of you and I. They commit us, they draw us in, they make us responsible to one another and for one another. They make us say, I'm in. And this deep, mature love does not rise and fall proportionate to our feelings. Its roots go far deeper than that. It's why the philosopher Joseph Pieper said, to love someone is not to desire them. It's to desire something for them. All right, let's talk about the self. The self begins with this kind of individualized and what I'll call psychologized understanding. The French philosopher Michel de Montaigne has this wonderful expression, a room at the back of the shop. There's a lot to unpack there. Talk to your respective professor. Uh, But what he means by that is even in the orderliness of our social selves that we present to the world, we still have personalities. We still have these unique characteristics that that define who we are. We have idiosyncrasies that, that are unique to you and I. So let me give you an example, some examples of this. Several years ago, my, my wife and I, we went to visit uh, her sister and, and husband in St. Louis, and a really close friend of mine lives there. He's a surgeon there. And he wanted to come over to the house and introduce his girlfriend, now his wife, to us. And he's, he's a surgeon, and she has a PhD and an MD. They have all these advanced degrees, and they have really defined and refined food tastes, and they're intellectuals, and they run marathons, and, you know, that kind of thing. And so I, I thought it would be funny if when they came and he introduced this person that I grew a long mustache as well as I could and buy this, like, nasty silk shirt uh, with a butterfly collar to introduce myself to them. It didn't go very well. So when they they walked in the door, this is actually what they were introduced to. (laughs) You meme that? I might accidentally lose your diploma. The joke fell flat. And then Maria walked up to me and she's like, you made your little joke, now go take that ridiculous shirt off. I have a sense of humor. It's a warped sense of humor. This is why Thane and I get along. But I have a sense of humor. Our family has a sense of humor. We make jokes a lot. We, we love the sophomore musical. And so we still go around our house and, and do the Andrew Siemens, the, oh, Eric! <laughs> I like British alternative. I think Christopher Nolan movies are brilliant. I love the old Twilight Zones. I, I cry every time I watch the movie Hoosiers. I even showed my kids a trailer of that and started crying. My brain releases endorphins whenever I read a well-worded sentence or paragraph. I'm a pathological coffee drinker. I love devotional time in the morning. I have a personality. I have a room at the back of the shop. You have a personality. You have a room at the back of the shop. And that is a good thing. We have individuality. We have agency. That's a good thing. We can be reflective and introspective. That's a good thing. Individual human rights are really embedded in a sense of individuality. I think rights are a good thing. So I'm not here to knock individuality. And moreover, it's not just that all individualism is bad. Not all community may be good necessarily. Communities can be complex. They can be harmful or hurtful sometimes. 
Some communities can lead us astray if we're not careful. All the disclaimers on that. But here's the thing. Discussions of individuality often get incorporated in a self-understanding that's very modern. And there are some concerning elements of this that really demand our attention and our consideration. For example, a popular way of characterizing the modern self is what might be described as the psychologized self. That is, who I am is simply a function of my internal faculties, my mind, my will, my emotions, and my desires. This is a very disembodied, acontextual understanding of ourselves. And the intellectual genealogy of the modern self abstracts from my social self or my social commitments, my context, my attachments. Put differently, the narrative of the modern self is that we have no narrative other than the narrative we tend to manufacture. This is why Stanley Harvath said, the project of modernity has been to produce people who believe they should have no story other than the story they chose when they had no story. And related to this is a notion of self-ownership that I possess myself and therefore I have to express myself and therefore I have to perfect myself. And y'all, this isn't Kevin Brown saying this. There is a lot of researchers saying, this view is killing people. It's too heavy for us. We don't have the shoulders. As my friend Huli Goddard would say, we don't have the constitution for that kind of belief and understanding of ourselves. Tim Keller echoing others says, this view is crushing us. One philosopher facetiously calls this the unencumbered self. That is the belief that I'm an unencumbered creator of my own self-identity from the raw material of the world around me. And among other things, let me just say, this is problematic because it fails to account for one of the most important dimensions of identity, which is this, durability. Durability. The durability in my sense of of self, that unchanging, immutable identity that goes across all dimensions of my life. Durability in my source of self-worth and value. Where does my value come from? And durability in my dispositional spirit to act with excellence, what we classically call virtue. In the Christian tradition, this is not the direction of the self. Yes, we have personalities. Yes, we we have a room at the back of the shop. We have weird senses of of humor like I do, but there's more. You know, there's a a contemporary folk band, Fleet Foxes, incredibly talented group of guys. They had an album years ago called Helplessness Blues, and the, the lead song on that album by the same name opens with this fascinating expression. I was raised up believing I was somehow unique, like a snowflake, distinct among snowflakes, unique in each way you can see. And now after some thinking, I'd say I'd rather be a functioning cog in some great machinery serving something beyond me. But I don't know, I don't know what that will be. I'll get back to you someday, you will see. Maybe. They're saying, maybe the modern view of self, that I'm an autonomous, self-created, I'm responsible to uniquely define myself, maybe that's misleading or wrong. Maybe I don't have the shoulders 
to bear the weight of my own self-ownership and my own self-responsibility and my own self-perfection. Maybe I'm not responsible for forging my life out of the raw material around me, and maybe I was designed and I have a purpose, and maybe living into that purpose is my best life. So I wanna talk about the direction of the self as a movement to the relational self. I think one of the most brilliant philosophers in the 20th century was Alastair McIntyre. And to summarize, some of his philosophy would be this, to know what to do, you have to know who you are. And to know who you are, you have to know the story that you exist within. And in the Christian story, we are embodied, we have bodies. We are embedded in a particular time and space and place. And we are relational beings. In this story, the essence of a person, the irreducible, non-transferable characteristic of who you and I are is that we are made in the image of God. John Wesley says that we are relationally constituted. There is an entire field called relational personhood, and I definitely can't unpack it here, but suffice to say, it simply means I know who I am through others. I know who I am through you. And in this story, it's our embedded social roles, our context, and our associated obligations that form our identity and govern our action. In other words, we are persons, not just individuals, we are persons, not defined by our internal understanding about who we are, the psychologized self, but rooted in our self-understanding through our social embeddedness, our context, and our associations. If you want to know what to do, you have to know who you are, and to know who you are, you have to know the story that you exist within. Let me give a, a, maybe a tried example of what I mean. Years ago, I taught at a different institution, uh, and it was in northern Indiana, and my wife and I didn't have a lot of money back then, and so we rented this little house for four years that was near the campus. And northern Indiana, y'all, is cold. It is cold. And so, that house got really, really cold. It was really drafty. And one night, it was the middle of the night, uh, we, we hear this, this voice at the top of the stairs, Campbell, I think he's here today. And he, he kind of did that, mom, dad. And uh, the parents in here know that voice. So we kind of wake up a little bit. And then Maria goes to the foot of the stairs and she was like, Campbell, are you okay? Campbell, are you gonna barf? And as soon as she said that, like on cue, he just like yacked. And these, these stairs are wooden slats, they're really steep, right? So it's like cascading down, like <laughs> slinky, you remember that? And Maria, you will not find another human being on the planet more averse to vomit than my wife. And so she's like, Kevin, I think I'm gonna throw up! And she like runs away from the vomit. So I'm just sitting there freezing, two in the morning, ready to commit myself to clean up vomit. I put on a sweatshirt, I went, got the cleaning stuff, and I did. Why? Not because I'm virtuous. Not because I drank a five-hour energy or, or a pot of coffee or both. Not because I thought, wow, this would be a really funny thing to put on some social media site. And definitely not because I felt like it. I did it because I'm a father and because I'm a husband. Now again, I don't say that to sound heroic, but, but as a scholar might say, uh, my, my actions adhered to the responsibilities associated with my socially embedded identity. 
I'm a son, I'm a brother, I'm a husband, I'm a father, I'm an Asbury employee. When I started this job, by the way, I heard someone say to me, they were another president, and they very wisely said, you know, there are things you're not going to want to do at Asbury, but the president will have to do them and take you with them. I'm a member of a church, and most importantly, I'm a Christian. I'm a Christ follower. So don't miss this part. Those things limit what I can do. They, They militate against this kind of modern idea of freedom, that I'm an unencumbered, unencumbered, unlimited, individuated person with the liberty to act and choose as I see fit. Those identities moderate my choices. They constrain, they guide, they regulate, and they govern my beliefs and practices. And those identities and socially embedded communal bonds, they obligate me. So those things don't sound attractive, but here's the thing. They are a source of identity, durable identity, unshakable identity, a source of meaning, significance, fulfillment, gratification. They provide a durable source of worth and sense of self and value. They help me to know what to do. They point me to what is good and right and true. Even when it's hard, I'm living in a story. So are you. The biblical scholar N.T. Wright, and I love this, he describes history as this kind of multi-act play, a grand narrative that we enter during a particular time and place. But importantly, he reminds us our lives are not constituted by infinite spontaneity. Our agency, our improvisation occurs within a storyline. Again, as Christians, we inhabit a story. Time has a logic. Time has a direction. We're moving towards something. Our lives are directional. So this brings me to A third dimension of the Christian life I want to discuss as I I round out to close here, and that's related to the direction of Jesus' invitation. I, I love this image of Jesus in Revelation standing at the door of our heart, knocking, seeking fellowship, uh, pursuing us, desirous of a relationship with you and I. And and that invitation, you all know this, it's to everyone. And that that was so radical. In Jesus' day, it's certainly radical still today. Jesus was reaching out to what you might call the riffraff of his day. He hung out with tax collectors. He was chummy with Roman guards and soldiers. He did not distance himself from women who did not live by the, the regular norms of marriage, whether that's adultery or divorce. He describes himself as the shepherd seeking the lost sheep. He says, let the children come to me. And he was accused of being a friend of tax collectors and sinners. And and you and I, we like this Jesus, right? This is the Jesus that said, whoever believes in me, they won't perish, they'll have eternal life. Whosoever, all can come. Let the one who has never sinned cast the first stone, the seemingly non-judgmental Jesus. Let all who are weary come to me. I will give you rest. The Jesus that gives us this restful uh, oasis amidst the busyness and craziness of our lives and saying, I desire mercy, not sacrifice, this open-handed Jesus. And the open invitation of Jesus really can be summarized in one word. Come. Come. 
You don't come from a Christian background? Come. You have a broken family? Come. You have addictions? Come. You have fears? Come. You've made mistakes? Come. You're a sinner? Come. Your complexity, your anxiety, your pathologies, your brokenness, come, 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 come. The inviting Jesus. This is the open invitation Jesus who's always telling us to come. But there is a discipling Jesus as well. And can we confess we're more challenged by this Jesus God invites us just as we are, but he loves us far too much to leave us there. This Jesus, the discipling Jesus, is far more challenging and demanding. Whoever wants to be first must be last of all and servant of all. Whoever doesn't take up the cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Do not sin anymore so that nothing worse happens to you. Those who lose their life for my sake will find it. Blessed are you when people revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you on my account. Enter through the narrow gate, for the gate is narrow, the road is hard that leads to life. There are few who find it. That's a hard verse. Many are called, few are chosen. It's the Jesus who makes challenging moral demands like love your enemies, That's hard to do. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will be saved, but only he or she who follows the will of my Father in heaven. Whoever denies me before others, I will deny them before my Father. You see, Jesus' invitation has a direction. Just like everything else, Jesus is inviting us on a journey, and that journey has a destination, and that journey isn't safe, and that journey is not predictable, and that journey is not easy, and that journey will not leave you and I as we are, and that journey demands everything. But don't miss this. Jesus' invitation and life-altering transformation we are invited into, this is an invitation to life, real life. Christ saying, I have come that they may have life and have it abundantly, completely, all around, equidistant life. The life that really is life, as Paul says. We have to ask ourselves, when we see Jesus say, those who lose their life for my sake will find it. Do you believe that? That's a hard verse. Do we believe if we lose our life for the sake of Christ, we'll find it? I love this quote by Tish Harrison Warren. Pretty good people don't need Jesus. He came for the lost. He came for the broken. This follows James Stewart, the Scottish theologian, who said, the desperate are the ones who need God. Christianity is not for the well-meaning. It's for the desperate. This is the inviting Jesus, but she points us in the trajectory and the direction of the discipling Jesus. In his love for us, he came to usher us into his foundness and his wholeness. Jesus' invitation has a purpose. It has a direction, and that is for a full and flourishing life. Let me conclude. When I finished grad school, I had a lot of people in my life who were really instrumental in helping me to do that. Hardest thing I've ever done. And I wrote an acknowledgement letter to all of them, and I ended that by saying, because you are, 
I am. Now that expression is not unique to me. It's based upon an African phrase. And it wasn't just a creative way of saying thank you. You know, it wasn't just some pithy slogan that I wanted to end with. It was the truest expression I could make to those individuals, those persons who I was in deep community with. Paul says that we are members of one another. Because my family is, I am. Because my church is, I am. Because my friend is, I am. Most importantly, because God is, I am. These relationships, they draw me into a story and they obligate me. They commit me. I'm in. I'm in. They define me. They help me to know who I am and what I should do. And they guide me because that story has a trajectory and it has a direction. Asbury, I want you to belong. I want you to become and I want you to be set apart. There's nothing more important than that aim. But the thing we're talking about isn't really the thing that we're talking about. This is acceptance, absolutely, but it's also obligation. This is individuality, yes, but it's also embedded, committed relationality. This is an open invitation, yes, but it is an invitation to a journey that will demand and change and transform everything. We believe, though, that this is the good life. This is the best life. This is our abundant life that we seek as a community. Participation in the life of God, obligations unto others as an act of love, willing the good of one another. And let me end with this. Here's the best part. You and I get to do this together. We get to face those things together. We get to experience those joys together those redemptive moments together, those hardships together, those those things that are difficult to stare down together. We get to do this together.